from the unreal to the real lead us from darkness unto light lead us from death to immortality om peace 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 swami vivekananda in his gyana yoga lectures um, he gave two talks the macrocosm and the microcosm in 1896 here in new york and there he takes up the most fundamental questions uh, of humanity what is this universe what is the secret of this universe what are we what is the purpose and ultimate de- the destination or destiny of of humanity the purpose of life how are we to overcome suffering so all of these fundamental questions of human existence uh, he takes up for consideration and he gave two talks the first talk was called the macrocosm and the second the microcosm you see our experience of the world is i and this subject and object all our experience all through our lives is ourselves and everything else so this investigation into the everything else the the objective universe this is the subject matter of macrocosm the first talk that swami vivekananda gave the investigation into the object and uh, the investigation into ourselves uh, that was the subject matter of the talk the microcosm subject object is basically the structure of our experience so all our investigation should will be of one or the other so this vast universe Uh, Swami Vivekananda speaks eloquently of the beauties and the magnificence of this universe its stars and planets and nebulae and mountains and oceans what is it where did the, all this come from what is its destiny uh, what's going on here because we see such a tiny slice of it uh, in space we just see this little bit um and now of course with our instruments or telescopes we see far out into the universe uh in time our place in this universe is so little uh, even humanity uh, started just a few million years ago uh, in in the scale of billions of years this is almost nothing so we really do not know and from ancient times onwards this was a, a great question where did all this come from the origin of this universe uh, in the most ancient of texts in the rigveda uh, one of the hymns the famous nasadiya suktam nasadasit nosadasit that when there was neither ought nor not what existed kimasit gahanam gabhiram in in the profound depths what existed from which everything else has uh, emerged so these questions swami vivekananda says in his talk that i shall lay before you the thinking of the ancient indian sages in harmony with modern knowledge so ancient indian philosophy but 
expressed in harmony with, with the latest findings of science. And by latest, of course, we mean more than 100 years ago when Swami Vivekananda was here. He was always interested in this. Uh, it was not, what he was going to speak about was not just a history of ancient Indian philosophy. Rather, the essential uh, principles which are relevant even today uh, in terms of modern physics and cosmology. He was very interested in this. Um, he met some of the leading minds of his time, including Nikola Tesla, uh, who uh, in the World Parliament of Religions at Chicago, the, in the science exposition, Tesla had a, a pavilion. And Swami Vivekananda reco records how he says one of the leading scientific minds of the West he would shut down his pavilion when it was time for Swami Vivekananda's lecture and he would come and stand at the back of the hall and listen to just Swami Vivekananda's talk and then go back to his pavilion and that was Tesla actually. And they struck up quite a, an interesting correspondence. Swami Vivekananda writes that, uh, that Tesla is very interested in the Sankhyan ideas of Akasha and Prana and I'm going to go to him and talk about it and he has said that he will be able to, able to demonstrate the truth of these ancient principles and ancient conclusions uh, with mathematics. I give a mathematical proof of Sankhyan cosmology. I do not know what happened. Uh, probably, I don't think science was advanced enough. Physics was certainly not advanced enough at that time. Uh, maybe today there would be a better match between what Swami Vivekananda was talking about in modern cosmology. But Swamiji was very interested in this. Uh, and the other Swamis who came afterwards, we find um, um, Swami Abhedanandaji, who was here in this Vedanta Society. In, in his diary, he records how he met this inventor who took him to his laboratory and showed him around and asked him questions about India and Vedanta. And he also records the name of the inventor, uh, Edison. <laughs> so, what are the conclusions which Swami Vivekananda placed before his audience here in New York more than a hundred years ago? He says, when we look at this universe, what do we see? One thing is that we see patterns. We see that uh, you plant a little seed and it develops, a, 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 a plant comes out and then it develops into a tree and then it goes back to the seed again. There is a, uh, and that seed comes, becomes a plant again and so on. Uh, he talks about the egg and the, the chicken and egg problem. So uh, the, from the egg comes the chicken and from the chicken or the hen comes the egg again and so on. Um, the question we all generally we ask is which was first chicken or egg, but that's not what Swami Vivekananda says. Swami Vivekananda says that apart, which was first is a, is a separate question, but notice the pattern that uh, uh, from the egg comes the bird and from the bird again comes the egg. He gives the example of uh, water, and the water cycle in fact, which we all studied in geography when we were kids. Uh, he says, look how the water becomes vapor and dances upwards in, in, on sunbeams and when it reaches a high, uh, re higher region, it gets transformed, the vapor gets transformed into water and comes down as rain and falls into rivers and ponds and again later on to come go up as vapor. This cycle, uh, we all learned this and when we, you know, it was the water cycle and you have to draw it. Uh, so, uh, and another example he gives, very poetic, he says, um, the mountains, the high Himalayan mountains, 
you know, I, I remember the first time I read that the Himalayas were at one time underwater, uh, that uh, uh, fossils have been found on the highest Himalayan peaks, showing that these peaks were at one time underwater, under the ocean, millions and millions of years ago. Swami Vivekananda speaks about this. He says that these towering mountains, they are being ground down and pounded into sand by the action of glaciers and rivers till it flows into the oceans and layer after layer of sand is, is crushed rock hard and becomes mountains and in the future will become the mountains of the future which will again be transformed slowly over eons of time into, into sand and go into the oceans. From sand come these mountains and unto sand they go. That is the language Swami Vivekananda uses. So you discern a pattern, uh, a, a, a cycle if you will. And this thing, Swami Vivekananda, he says, um, thousands of years ago, there was Kapila, uh, an ancient Indian sage. Swami Vivekananda calls him the first philosopher of humanity. He saw this and he gave this principle of causality. From cause comes effect. And the effect becomes the cause again for the uh, next effect. So cause and effect go in a cycle. And what is creation? Cause becoming the effect. From the unmanifest becoming the manifest. And from the manifest becoming the unmanifest is destruction. So from, uh, let's say, um, he gives an example of a table. When the table is destroyed, it goes back its, into its constituent parts, uh, the wood, wood uh, particles maybe. So going back to the cause, from the manifest to the unmanifest, this is destruction. And what is creation? It is going from the cause to the effect, from the unmanifest to the manifest is creation. So what we call birth is from egg to the chicken, that's the birth from the seed to the plant. And what we call death is when the plant dies or the chicken dies, but already, in usually, it's already given rise to a new seed or a new egg which will give rise to uh, further effects. So this idea of cause and effect. Now Swami Vivekananda says, if it be true that nature is uniform, that what we see in this little slice of the world which we experience, if this be the pattern of the universe, and, he's, and he says there is nothing to show otherwise, science depends on the uniformity of nature, then he says, by knowing a grain of sand, we will know the secret of the universe. He is, um, I think, echoing William Blake, mm -hmm. uh, to, to see the, a world in a grain of sand, and heaven in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand, an eternity in an hour. So if it, be, if it be true that nature is uniform, then what you see in one little bit of nature, in our experience, little experience of nature, you can extrapolate. Which means, from the example of the seed and the plant and the uh, egg and the bird and, and mountains and sand and so on and so forth, um, Kapila extrapolated it to the entire universe. That this entire universe was at one time in a seed state, in an unmanifest state, in a potential state. And then it has become this manifested universe. 
So the creation of the universe, remember the original cause, where has all this tremendous variety come from? And now we are beginning to get an answer. This variety is the manifested state, is the diversified, the fully realized state of the universe. But it has all come from a potential state. There must have been a state where there was no, this, this diversity was not there. It was in a seed state. All these plants and animals, all these stars and planets and galaxies, all of this was probably a single point. And Kapila gave it the name Prakriti, the root nature, from which diversifies into this entire universe. So this is the great principle of causality called Satkaryavada. Satkaryavada, the, the theory of causality which says, that the effect which you see now pre-existed in some form in the cause. You see, this is an interesting fact. All this diversity that we see, it has not come out of nothing. Swami Vivekananda says there, creation never comes out of nothing. Something comes out of something. And from the unmanifest, at the most you can say from the unmanifest, the manifest has come. From the undiversified, the diversified has come. Um, In the seed, you do not see the branches and the roots and the flowers and the fruits of, of, the, of the tree. But they are all there. Today with our understanding of genetics, we know that all of that is, is potentially there. All the information is there in the seed. In the uh, tiny embryo, the entire information, genetic information for creating at least the body of the hu human, fully developed human being, it's already there. So this was understood. They did not know the genetic, the details of genetics in those days probably, but they understood it in principle. That it is entirely possible that all this we see was potentially there in the seed state of nature before the universe was created. Created means manifested. Now you speak the language of unmanifest to manifest. One Kashmiri philosopher puts it so beautifully, poetically. He says the peacock. Um, the entire brilliant display of colors in the uh, feathers of a peacock are all there in the homogeneous colorless yolk of the peacock's egg. <laughs> it does not seem to be colorful at all. But in principle, all that comes, comes out of it must already be there. Next, Swami Vivekananda says, next big idea, evolution. Now this is a major development in modern thought from Darwin onwards. But you find this idea firmly in place thousands of years ago uh, in Indian thought. Sir Monier Williams who, who made who the first Sanskrit English dictionary, uh, he says that, uh, he was a British Indologist, he says that these ancient Indians were Darwinists a thousand years before Darwin. They talk about evolution, about more complex forms coming out of, of simple forms. There's a sutra in the Yoga Sutras, Prakriti Apuranat, by the infilling of nature. Now there's a difference between uh, Darwinian evolution and uh, the way the Sankhyans understood this. In modern evolution theory, we understand that um, the genetic material undergoes constant mutation and at the macro level the environment keeps on changing 
And some of these mutations are favored for survival because, because they match what the environment requires. I mean, that's the language of uh, the survival of the fittest. So all the mutations which, which result in different forms of the living creature are not suitable for survival. Those which are suitable, they survive and they propagate. So that's how evolution works. Now, this is all very fine. But what Kapila would say that these are not the source of evolution. These are helps. These are the ones which bring out the potential. The source of evolution, why evolution happens, is that all of this potential already exists in the cause. Just as, as a particular human being develops from the embryo, as the plant develops from the seed, it's not just because of the pressure of the environment. In the case of each individual, it's the genetic material which uncoils with the help of the individual. And that was the idea of evolution of these ancients, that it's all there in a potential form, uh, in Prakriti, in nature, and over time it evolves into this universe. So evolution was understood. We also say that, you know, when you look at the idea of God, how that evolves from animal form, in the Dasha avatar, the ten avatars of Vishnu, from the animal forms, you know, a fish and a tortoise and a half human, half animal form like the Nrisinga avatar uh, to a human form. Showing a kind of idea of evolution of forms, uh, which was there uh, among the ancients. So this is the, the causality found in the Sankhyan theory of Kapila. Vivekananda calls him the first philosopher of the human race. Then Vivekananda adds another idea, which I must say is not yet admitted by science. He says it's not just evolution, it's also what he calls involution. This idea of involution is something that Vivekananda introduces. Uh, and this is found in the, uh, the ancient Satkaryavada, the idea of causality. What is this evolution? It is not only that the seed becomes manifested, from the unmanifest, manifested into the plant, uh, the egg into the chicken, um, the singularity into the universe, but also the tree, before it dies, it gives rise to the seed or many seeds, where the entire potentiality of the, of the tree, whatever it is, has been poured back again into that tiny homogeneous seed which is potential, which is, which is a tremendous capacity of generating a new tree, but the tree has, in a sense, gone back um, into the seed. Somebody was telling me uh, just a couple of days back, just as the globe is heating due to global warming, and human beings tend to, and animals also, tend to migrate from areas which are becoming too hot, to cooler areas, um, northward they tend to migrate. Uh, they told me that even the trees are migrating. I said, how can trees migrate? They don't move. Uh, as the discussion was about the migration of birds. How can trees migrate? They don't move. They move through seeds. And the seeds are being transmitted and the, um, the seeds which go further into cooler cli uh, climates, they germinate and they survive. So the whole species has moved a little bit northward. Um, so the potentiality, entire potentiality go, it manifests as the effect and then goes back into the potentiality. 
So the entirety of, of the tree, of, of the complexity of life, is back in the seed, in the embryo. This is what Swami Vivekananda calls involution. Now why wouldn't science admit that? At this level science does admit it. But what Swami Vivekananda is suggesting and the Sankhyan suggested was this entire universe goes into that process. That one day this universe with its all its diversity will go back into the seed form. Uh, containing all this diversity in, in a homogeneous form. Not, it will not be expressed. You will not see stars and planets and pl human beings and uh, um, Vedanta lectures going on in the seed form. But potentially the whole thing is there which will be the seed for the next universe. This, he says, if you combine the idea of evolution and involution, then evolution, instead of being the enemy of religion, will actually prove the truth of religion. He just says it and leaves it there. It's a very interesting idea. See, one of the biggest blows to religious uh, thinking has been the idea of evolution. This variety of life, this diversity, the extremely sophisticated design that we find in our bodies. The first reaction to this to thinkers was that there must have been this intelligent designer who created this, all this diversity. But then Darwin came with his theory of evolution and showed all this complexity and this design can emerge out of evolution. You don't require an external designer to create all this. It's not like a human being, you know, the idea of the watchmaker. That if you, um, William Paley came up with this idea, that if you are walking along and you see a stone, you will think that uh, uh, it's natural, it's always been there. But if you're walking along in a garden, you come across a watch, in those days pocket watches, so pocket watch. You will not say, oh it's natural, it's always been there. You will say somebody's dropped it, it's human made. Why? Why do you say that? Even, he says, a, a primitive culture which does not have watches, artificial watches, even they will recognize this is not natural. This is artificial because of the complexity and design. And so that led to this design theory that because there is complexity and design, especially in, in living bodies and the higher animals, there must be some kind of God who created these uh, designs. But along comes Darwin and he shows Complex designs can emerge out of natural processes, just by the process of the struggle to survive uh, and the constant random mutation of genetic material, you can have ever more sophisticated bodies. Yeah. Then it, the, there is no argument, the argument for the existence of God is now knocked out. Yeah. We don't need a designer of this universe. The universe can design sophisticated uh, living bodies, uh, can produce sophisticated designs without the help of God. I think it was Pascal who said, uh, the, the king of France questioned him, but in your entire thesis you have not mentioned God. And I think he replied that, I do not see the need for that hypothesis, that, that, that there is a God, I do not see the need for such an hypothesis. Why? Uh, because the way we look at modern science now, especially evolution, it can, it can take the role of what, what God was supposed to do. But, so it becomes the enemy of, of uh, religion. Swami Vivekananda says, if you add the idea of involution to it, then it becomes this whole idea of evolution and involution taken together actually proves the truth of religion. How does it do so? Notice, 
the sankhyan idea of spirituality um, is a very natural idea it's talking about this world it's not talking about there's something else beyond this world which you have to believe in no by studying the the emergence and the disappearance of the universe we can prove that um, that ultimate reality called god swami vivekananda says that um, even the highest product of of evolution and he, he says the the buddha man of the buddhists the christ man of the christians and the free of the yogis that is the jivan mukta of the vedantins all of this then must have been there uh, in potential form in the first protoplasm of of life and even if you go further back into the singularity at the beginning of the universe from there to the emergence of matter and space energy and space and time to the emergence of stars and planets to the emergence of life and the evolution of life to the emergence of intelligence and the evolution of civilization to the coming of uh, of spirituality and religion and uh, the appearance of these um highly evolved spiritually evolved human beings yeah. evolved in the sense of of morals and love and unselfishness and spiritual insight all of this they must have been there at the very beginning of this universe also in an unmanifest form so this is the idea of um the evolution and involution of the universe that reality which emerges from now he introduces the term god so i'm waking up for the first time introduce the term god from that from the idea of god from 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 that ultimate reality called god which emerges as a seed and then evolves into this magnificent universe and goes back into the seed and behind it all giving it existence giving it light yeah. making it all possible is that reality that supreme power which swami vivekananda says now we can use the term god and then he says if at the very beginning i had said god created this universe we would not have understood and we would have said this is just the same old thing which we we learn in uh, in our you know uh, sunday bible class it is true but in what sense so there is this uh, reality which in vedanta is called brahman which is of the nature of existence consciousness bliss which appears as this universe so the final form of the vedantic theories going from the sankhyan to the vedantic theory is this about this entire universe there is this existence consciousness bliss the ultimate reality which um appears as this universe and this universe which is which is appearing goes through a cycle um in in sanskrit brahma vivarta prakriti parinama the appearance of brahman and the transformation of prakriti in english the the appearance the manifestation of god and the transformation of nature the transformation of nature it goes through these two phases involution and evolution so prakriti cycles back nature cycles between manif- unmanifest and manifest this is called creation god remaining in the background gives its the entire thing existence so this is called creation when prakriti goes cycles from the unmanifest to the manifest the entire universe appears and then this is called destruction of the universe in sanskrit pralaya when prakriti this manifest universe goes back to the unmanifest state prakriti god remaining as god is as existence consciousness bliss 
This whole thing taken together is called Saguna Brahman in Vedanta. Saguna Brahman means Brahman with qualities, Brahman with attributes. Existence, consciousness, bliss, that is Brahman, associated with Prakriti or Maya. This is the idea of Saguna Brahman. This is the reality of the universe. And uh, Swami Vivekananda ends the talk on macrocosm at that point. So this is the basic idea of the universe, that there is a fundamental reality which appears as this universe, and in this appearance it, un it goes through um, uh, birth and diversification and death, uh, from unmanifest to manifest, back to the unmanifest again. The entire potentiality is always there, nothing new appears. Swamiji uses the term, so this universe is the creation of Brahman, rather it is the projection of Brahman, rather it is Brahman itself. Three stages. We see it as the creation of God, but creation is nothing other than the projection. What was unmanifest is becoming manifest. And what was unmanifest, there also the same Brahman was there. What is manifest now, here also the same Brahman is there. So he says it is Brahman itself, in the unmanifest state, when the universe is not there, Brahman. In the manifest state, here, when evolution is going on, and all this diversity has appeared and tremendous change is going on, it is Brahman, in reality. What is changing? Prakriti or nature. What is the unchangeable background? Brahman itself. Then he goes on to turning inwards. It's very natural to go outwards, and so therefore the first question was always, what is all this? After examining this for some time, in ancient times, they found this unsatisfactory. Though still the question remains, so what? This is a We have understood something about the universe. We have understood what is uh, maybe the origin of the universe. We have understood how this diversity appears, and what is cycling back and forth and that uh, what is appearing now existed in a potential form, that something does not come out of nothing. All these things are possible. Uh, these are insights we gain into the universe. But still, so what? What about us? What is, what am I? And what is my destiny? And what is my purpose? What am I to do in all this vastness? So the question now turned inwards. An investigation into the human, into the subject. Microcosm and macrocosm. So having considered the macrocosm, now the attention turns inwards into the microcosm, into ourselves. Uh, the question is asked about the human being, about our mind, not just the body, but also about the inner person, uh, the mind and the self and consciousness. As the ancients, so the moderns. It is so interesting that consciousness studies has become so important and such a vibrant field in the last, but only in the last 20-30 years. Uh, before that it was not even considered a serious field of research. How strange is it? Does it not strike you as strange? That science, which is an investigation into reality, the reality which is closest to us, our own minds and our awareness, our own self, that was not investigated. The first thing that we investigated was the world. The closest thing that we investigated to ourselves was the body. And all of that was good and it led to tremendous development of science. But the thing which is closest to us, which we think we are, our self, our mind, our consciousness, 
that did not form the subject of in, of investigation especially consciousness until the last 20 30 years i remember hearing christoph koch christoph koch uh, who is the chief scientist of the paul allen brain institute he was saying that when he went into consciousness research about 40 years ago all his colleagues and his and his professors told him you are destroying your career mm-hmm. it's a career destroying move <laughs> so this investigation what are we when the body dies is anything left when the physical body goes this is the question from the most ancient times is everything destroyed when the body is buried or burnt or is there something left over if there is something that survives physical death then what is its destiny whence has it come where does it go the answers were found in the most ancient times in the vedas in the upanishads answers were found but the question has been asked again and again and the answers have to be restated swami ji is very clear he says i do not claim to tell you anything new it is the wisdom of the ancients but stated in the language of the modern man it is the wisdom the the of the ancient philosophers stated in the language of the modern scientist he says poetically it is the language of the gods stated in the language of uh, of poor humanity so that we may understand the truth which came from that divine essence the divine essence from which this truth has come that divine essence is in all of us so that we too may understand that truth today there is swami vivekananda's language so the language of the ancients in the language of modern scientists a few months ago the cosmologist brian green who's here in colombia uh, he is one of the great popularizers of the latest ideas of cosmology and physics today um many of us have seen the pbs documentaries based on his book the elegant universe you know uh, he is a brilliant expo- uh, he's a brilliant scientist and an expositor uh, of science popularizer of science so his latest book until the end of time look at the title of the book what is how where did this universe come from and the entire journey of the universe from its beginning and he says until the end of time until the universe is is finished um just by the way he he gave a very nice talk at at harvard and i was privileged to attend that talk uh, on the launch of this book and i was so uh, inspired to see the eagerness for knowledge the devotion uh, the passion for understanding so this launch of a book and a big auditorium i think 500 people or 800 people sitting in that auditorium in the harvard science center for the talk on this book uh, and he's a brilliant and dynamic teacher is a very good teacher uh, you you are you feel inspired when you listen to him if you are interested what will happen at the end of time he said nothing much <laughs> the earlier idea was that the universe begins in a singularity through the big bang space time energy fundamental particles are created and then evolution uh, i mean first of all cosmic evolution and then biological evolution takes over and finally there is uh, uh, the force of gravity will pull everything back and it collapses into a singularity this was the earlier idea but the new idea is the latest understanding is that the force of gravity is not strong enough to pull back the expanding universe so the universe will keep on expanding stars and planets will the, the solar systems will keep flying away from each other and he gave 
beautiful graphics uh, where he showed the night sky which we are seeing now we are at a good time in cosmic history where we can study the universe we can see all of that but all of it is flying apart further and further millions of years in the future if we still if there are still uh, human beings who are interested in cosmology left when they look out into the sp sky they won't see anything because all the stars would have flown so far apart that light would not have traveled from those stars to the to the earth <coughs> so you won't be able to see the uh, stars and the uh, solar systems and the galaxies they would have all flown far apart and then the stars would run down run out of their uh, hydrogen fuel and become these red dwarfs and uh, uh, and that would be the end of the universe it would die a heat death so at the end of the universe at the end of time there would be nothing just free floating some f f some very fundamental particles floating around in the emptiness of space that's the end of the universe not very uh, not a very exciting end but still billions of years left so there is time <laughs> i think somebody said that he's so energetic and enthusiastic and bubbly and cheerful that even this gloomy tale he makes you feel good about it <laughs> now why i'm saying this is um his elder brother brian green's elder brother is a monk uh, he he is a, a vedantic monk and uh, not of our order he belongs to you know they're quite popular here in new york the hari krishnas the iskon so and he said i would often have these discussions with him and it's there in his book too that he would tell me the ve the vedic ideas of cosmology of the evolution of the universe and i would talk about modern cosmology and the question was do you think they were right these ancients so his answer is a very considered balanced answer brian green's answer he said that the ideas that we find in the in the vedas are uh, like poetic echoes of modern science they are not science but they are poetic echoes of modern science they seem to say the same thing but in in general in principle and in poetic language not in scientific language that's as far as he would go and he said oh he was very happy to see me because he uh, he, uh, he saw this dress and so we had a little talk um he he said he asked the dalai lama once um do you think that buddhism and by extension uh, vedanta hinduism has anything to contribute to science to the scientific understanding of the world and the Buddha, and the dalai lama uh, considered the question for a moment and then he said as far as the external universe is concerned we will look to you and your colleagues to deepen our understanding but as far as mind and consciousness are concerned definitely buddhism has something to say yeah, has something valuable to contribute so and he puts this story down in his book also until the end of time and that's it so as far as the macrocosm is concerned i think um, the ancient ideas of kapila are amplified and and we our understanding is much deeper with modern physics and cosmology uh, but as far as the macro the microcosm is concerned mind and consciousness vedanta and the other systems of ancient philosophy they have very valid very deep insights 
much more so than the modern understanding given by consciousness studies. I have noticed personally how interesting it is that the further we get away from ourselves to the body and to the world outside, the better that the modern science, uh, you know, the modern science has an edge over ancient wisdom. Um, it describes the world, and physics and chemistry. It describes the body, biology and physiology, um, probably better. But the closer and closer we come to ourselves, the more and more ancient wisdom seems to be better than modern science. When we come to the body, there are ancient uh, systems of medicine which do have something to say, which have uh, some effect uh, effectiveness. When we come to the mind, um, the you know, psychology of the yoga, uh, or Buddhism, actually is uh, far superior to modern uh, psychology. And when we come to consciousness, what modern science has to say, consciousness studies, is pretty crude and uh, to, to the level of being uh, silly uh, compared to what, um, say, Advaita Vedanta or Yoga and Sankhya or Buddhism have to say. So the closer we come to ourselves, the more these ancient knowledge systems seem to come to their own. A synthesis of both is called for. It's almost, the, the conclusion would be we should have both. And we should have that kind of, we should accept that kind of understanding from the ancient knowledge systems, which is compatible with modern science. And that was, I think, Swami Vivekananda's project too. So the microcosm, when we look at ourselves, we find, so Vivekananda takes the path of epistemology. How do we see, for example? What do we find our, um, in a, within ourselves? The way you investigate it is, take up epistemology, the, uh, the branch of philosophy which deals with knowledge. So when I see a flower, there is an object outside, and there is this sense organ. The sense organ takes information from that object and transmits it inwards. Part of this is physical. So there is the eyes and the optic nerves going to the brain centers. But then it becomes mental, it becomes subtle. Because then it, the information is now presented to the mind. Um, so from this object to the senses to the mind. The moment we come to the senses and the body, we have come to the microcosm, ourselves. And when we look inwards, at one point, the senses, they, they stop at the brain, but the senses are also, they have a subtle part in the mind. What I mean by this is, this, by the senses, the sense organs, I don't just physic mean the physical sense organs. It's very interesting that the mind is essential to the functioning of the sense organs. Even without the physical sense organ, the mind can still, in its own way, use uh, sensory uh, perception. What I mean by th th that is, suppose in your dreams, you fall asleep, your eyes are actually, physical eyes are closed. But in your mind you see, you hear, you smell, you taste, you touch, all those things go on in the dreams. Of course you are not seeing or hearing anything external, the whole thing, whatever you are seeing and hearing is in the mind. But my point is, that experience in the dream is also a kind of sensory experience. You say, in my dreams I saw this, in my dreams I heard this. Actually, you did not see or hear anything, but all of that was going on in the mind. The mind has a capacity to simulate uh, sensory experiences. So the senses have a subtle part in the mind. The data from the senses is collected and brought to the mind. In the mind, there is a seeing which is going on. There is a hearing and smelling and tasting and touching which is going on based on the data brought in by the senses. Uh, 
and the mind is the one which controls the senses, which coordinates the data, which uh, directs the senses. In the Kathopanishad, the mind is compared to the reins of a chariot, uh, where the reins control the horses. The horses are the senses, and they are controlled by the reins. The reins are the mind. And this is not the end. This mind which we are aware of directly, thoughts and feelings, but the function of the mind is to take and coordinate and consider the data brought in by the senses. Sankalpa vikalpa atmakam manaha. The mind is which considers various options and data brought in by the senses. Then it is presented to the intellect, another part of the subtle body. It is presented to the intellect, the buddhi. The intellect decides, the intellect clarifies, the intellect understands. In Sanskrit, nishchayatmika buddhi. Buddhi is the one, is the determinative faculty, which says what is what. It could, it could fail, then you would have incomprehension. But this is the function of the buddhi, the intellect. This is not the end. The whole thing now is presented to the self, the atman, which is consciousness. And then at that level what happens? You become aware of everything. I see this, I think about it, I understand it. All the functioning of the senses and the mind and the intellect is lit up by consciousness. Then is perception complete. When this lighting up goes from the intellect to the mind to the senses down to the sensory level, we, say, we can finally say, I see, I hear, I smell, I taste, I understand. So finally behind all of these, um, there is this consciousness, the, the real self. The real self is not the body, is not the senses, is not the mind, is not the intellect, but this consciousness which lights up the intellect and the mind and the senses through that the body and the entire universe which is experienced. So this consciousness is the self, the Atman. Then um, Swami Vivekananda talks about that now if you look at the entire system you can divide it into or you can analyze it into three components. There is the gross component, the physical component, the body including the physical sense organs, up to the brain. And then there is the subtle body. The subtle body, Swamiji uses the term the finer body. The subtle body, sukshma sharira, the gross body is called sthula sharira in Sanskrit. And the subtle body, sukshma sharira, which is the mind, including the sensory powers, the mind, the intellect. And beyond that, the soul, the atma, the consciousness. The soul or the Atman in Sanskrit, what is it made of? Consciousness. And that shines upon the subtle body. What is the subtle body made of? Mind and intellect and sensory powers. And that pervades the physical body. This, what is the physical body made of? Matter. So this is the microcosm uh, described by uh, ancient Sankhya, Vedanta, different knowledge systems in India. And as you can see, if you look at if we look at ourselves, none of it is speculative or theoretical. It's just a careful look at what's going on right now. That the physical body is there, there's no doubt about it, everybody knows. And the subtle body, it may sound speculative or occult. No, we all experience it, everybody experiences it. You may not call it the subtle body, we just call it my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my memories, my desires. This my, 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 this is the ego, this is also part of the subtle body. 
This is also functioning of the subtle body. And beyond that, the consciousness. This consciousness is the never-changing light. He uses the term soul, though I wonder if the soul actually accurately represents Atman. In ancient Greece, um, the words were anima, that which enlivens a physical body, pneuma, which is the word for breath. So the original idea in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean, the ancients, what they considered the soul is what would correspond to the prana in uh, Indian thought. Beyond the prana is the Atman, the real Atman. So three bodies, the physical body, the subtle body, and beyond that there is a causal body which Swami Vivekananda does not mention here for fear of confusing his New York audience a, a hundred years ago. It, uh, it is just the uh, seed form of the subtle body. When we fall asleep, that's the causal uh, body from which emerges the mind again. That's why it's called causal. It causes, it's the cause of the mind. So, Stula Sharira, Sukshma Sharira, Karana Sharira and beyond all of this the Atman. Physical body, subtle body, causal body, beyond which is the Atman, which we are. The Atman. This Atman, the consciousness, I'll say consciousness of the Atman, but that the Atman is consciousness. It is just consciousness itself. It, it, its consciousness is innate, intrinsic, unfailing, unchanging. The consciousness of the mind which you feel, the mind and the intellect, the awareness which we feel, it's a borrowed light. It's a borrowed light. Swami Vivekananda gives a couple of examples. He says, for example, the moon waxes and wanes. Why? Because its light is borrowed from the sun. Depending on the change of the position of the moon, it, it becomes uh, full moon or you know, half moon and then it becomes the new moon. It disappears because the light uh, waxes and wanes. Another example he gives is iron. When iron, which is cold and, and dark, is thrust into fire and it becomes hot, what happens? Red hot. It's very hot and it also glows red. So light, uh, it emits light and it uh, emits uh, heat, none of which belongs to the iron. After some time what will happen? The same cold, dark iron. Similarly, even the mind is not conscious. The physical body is not conscious. The mind is also not conscious. When the physical body feels conscious right now, when the mind and the senses feel conscious, it's not just which the mind which is conscious. Uh, our eyes and ears, they feel very conscious. Uh, the different kinds of sensory consciousness. All of this consciousness is borrowed. How do we know? When you take a cup of coffee early in the morning, mind feels very conscious. I'm very alert. And late in the night, the mind feels sleepy. Waking, alertness, sleepiness, dreaming, deep sleep. These are not states of consciousness. These are states of the mind. You find this in Drik Drishya Viveka. Waking, dreaming and deep sleep. Only loosely we call them states of consciousness. They are actually states of the mind. Consciousness, the Atman, is an ever-shining, ever unchanging light. But the mind, depending upon its state, can sometimes channel this consciousness effectively and it feels very alert and very, very conscious. Or when it weakens, maybe through aging and the, and the body slows down and the mind which is very closely connected to the body, that also slows down. It gets affected. It cannot channel this consciousness so, so well and feels dull and sleepy and tired. You say, I'm not as sharp as I used to be. Um, 
when we have these classes, Bill tells me after the class, so Bill is 96 years old, <laughs> he tells me after the class, uh, I'm not as quick as I used to be. I mean, I, I can't uh, uh, generate a question which I can ask in the class. Just the body which slows down along with the, with the mind, but the consciousness is aware. The consciousness which is aware of the quick mind, sharp mind, is also aware of the failing memory and the slowing down mind. Consciousness is not failed. Consciousness is not slowing down. So, this unchanging consciousness, whose very nature is light, uh, is, it's not a borrowed light. Swami Vivekananda says there, the consciousness, the Atman, it is not that the Atman exists, it is existence itself. It is not that the Atman has knowledge, it is knowledge itself. It is not that the Atman is happy, it is happiness itself. That existence which is borrowed, uh, will go away, relative existence. Existence going away means it will die. In our day-to-day -day language, death, destruction, which means it loses existence. A thing can lose existence only if it had gained existence. A thing gains and loses existence only if it is borrowed, it's not its own. The Atman's existence is its own, it, is, it exists intrinsically. Everything else, intellect, mind, um, sensory system, body, they all borrow existence and consciousness from the Atman. The consciousness which is borrowed can be gained and lost. But the Atman is consciousness by its very nature. It cannot gain or lose consciousness. Similarly with Ananda. So Vivekananda does not delve into this, but he just states it. Joy or bliss. The bliss in the mind the bliss in the intellect, the bliss of the senses, the, the pleasure of the senses is gained and lost. It is borrowed from the Atman, whose very nature is bliss. But the bliss which, which you find in the mind, the joys which of mental, emotional joy, the bliss which you find, the, the pleasure which you find in the senses, that comes and goes. Sometimes we are happy, sometimes we are not. That increases and decreases. Sometimes more happy, even more happy, sometimes much less so. But the Atman is the nature of bliss itself, neither increases nor decreases, neither comes nor goes, uh, and is of infinite nature. That means there is no lessening, there is no degree in, in that bliss of the Atman, or the Atman which is bliss. Then Swami Vivekananda, having shown the nature of the Atman, which is Satchidananda, he considers a question. Why not say that the soul or the Atman borrows its consciousness and existence from something higher than that? Yeah. Why not that? The problem will be, he says, then where do you stop? If the body and the senses have borrowed their consciousness from the mind, and the mind has borrowed consciousness from the intellect, intellect has borrowed consciousness from the self or the Atman, and if you say further back and further back, you go into a, what is called an, an infinite regress. In Sanskrit, it's called anavastha, uh, the logical fault of not having a foundation. So, infinite regress, that's the fault of logic. You have to stop somewhere and stop where you find it logical to stop. The self as consciousness is the place where you can stop. Uh, if the self is not conscious by its own nature and borrows something else, then that would be the self. So you always stop with, with uh, consciousness, the self as consciousness. One more subject, important subject, Swami Vivekananda investigates here, which we do not have time to go into, but it's a very, very interesting subject. The subject of karma and reincarnation.
the law of karma states that um, whatever we do has consequences. What we consciously, deliberately think, say and do has consequences, which is the consequences, the actions are called karma and the results are also called karma. If we do, consciously do what is, what we know to be good, dharma, the result is merit or punya. And the result of that is sukha or pleasant things happen in life. So we say good karma, you have good karma. It's entered into English now, especially American English. And if we do what is, we deliberately, we know, we deliberately do what we know is bad, adharma, it leads to uh, demerit, papa or sin. And the result of that is said to be suffering, dukkha. Um, unpleasant things happen in life. So this is the law of karma. Whatever we see in our life is the effect of our past karma. And whatever we do in life will give rise to effects in the future. This leads to reincarnation, the theory of reincarnation. Why? Because when a child is born, you see, uh, there is such vast differences across uh, children uh, born across the world, for example. A child born in a poor community, deprived of nutrition, of care, of security, of education. I was thinking, a dog born in Manhattan gets more facilities than the human beings born in some poorer communities of the other world. Mm -hmm. If those are effects, then where are the causes? The causes cannot be in this life because they have just been born. So there must be some past existence where the causes lie. So what we see as a diversity of effects at the very beginning of our life, the cause, if there is any cause and effect relationship at all, if there are causes to that, they must lie beyond, uh, before this life. So we must have existed in some form earlier. And as we go through life, all the things that we do, do we get the results of all of that in this life? Doesn't seem so. It's a, it's a common thing to hear that uh, there are so many evil people, they do bad things, but I don't see them suffering. That means the results of those things have not come yet. Usually when it comes to good things, we say that, I did so much good, I didn't get my rewards, my, the result of my good karma. And uh, for others we say, they did so many bad things, they didn't get punished enough. <laughs> it never, never the other way around. I did bad things and I didn't get punished enough when nobody complains. So the point is, Karma remains over. That means uh, we must accept uh, the possibility that there is karma remaining to be experienced and so there is a future uh, existence. After the death of this body, we will have new, uh, newer bodies where the leftover karma is experienced. But that's not the end. Because when we get newer bodies, we are again do more karma and that leads to more uh, birth. So birth and rebirth, the cycle of birth and rebirth is fueled by karma, is instigated uh, by karma. So the karma, cause and effect, leads to birth and rebirth. This is a concept which is sort of axiomatic for Indian thought. So all the different schools, widely diverse schools of uh, philosophy and religion in India, uh, they all accept, except the materialist, they all accept this uh, karma and reincarnation, birth and rebirth, the cycle of birth and rebirth. Uh, one Swami said once that 
ये बड़ी गंभीर तत्व है इन हिंदी दिस इज़ अ वेरी प्रोफाउंड फिलासफी प्रोफाउंड प्रिंसिपल नोटिस दैट द बुद्धिस्ट्स एंड द वेदांतिस्ट्स द बुद्धिस्ट डू नॉट एक्सेप्ट अ परमानेंट सोल दे डू नॉट एक्सेप्ट गाड एंड द वेदांतिस्ट्स अपहोल्ड द एग्जिस्टेंस ऑफ गाड एंड सोल येट बोथ विथ सच ट्रमेंडसली डाइवर्स व्यूज दे स्टिल एक्सेप्ट that there is karma and rebirth birth and rebirth so this this idea is common to indian thought all systems of indian thought but i find a strange resistance i was surprised actually one of the things that surprised me was the resistance to this idea in the west um scholars you know students and professors i found this why it surprised me was what is the resistance to this for if you look at the history of western thought which is dominated by christian thought for example or judaic thought there is always the belief of some existence after death all religion including christianity and judaism talks about the existence of the soul after death you talk about the immortal soul you're going to heaven or hell or whatever but you exist after death if that idea is i think that's the big step that is really the big step that to accept something exists after death if you have already accepted that or if you have already even if you don't accept it if you understand the concept the claim that you do exist after death then karma birth and rebirth are just extensions of that idea there is it's not so difficult if you exist after death the question is how do you exist um, do you always stay in the grave or do you get newer bodies and newer lives i think it's a much much better more exciting and <laughs> uh, full of possibilities not just to lie down in the grave in your coffin but to go through many more experiences and many more lives uh, so the possibility of many lives once you admit that there is something that survives the death of the physical body then the possibility of karma and rebirth becomes almost inevitable i don't see why there is uh, uh, so much why people consider it funny or strange i just imagine what it would have been like more than 100 years ago when swami vivekananda was talking about these things to a new york audience in 1896 swami vivekananda adds one note that please note he says the karma is uh, a philosophy of human free will it's not fatalism it's often misunderstood and indians are charged with fatalism it's a fatalistic kind of civilization where you say it's all my karma what can i do but if you take a deeper look at karma it's what we have ourselves generated what we are today is what we have created ourselves it's not fixed by some unknown force some tyrannical god who has made it so no what we are experiencing today is what we ourselves have created we reap what we sow so all of this is generated by what we have done in the past and the way we react now will generate our lives to come in the future what we will be in the future is in our hands today there is always that modicum of free will karma can only generate or determine the broad outlines of our lives where we are born our health and parents and um, the span of our lives but how we react to it that depends more on us than on karma it does not generate uh, every little movement of our minds or our thoughts or our direction that our life takes so we have freedom wherever there is uh, mind and intellect lit up by consciousness there is freedom we have the power to make our destiny 
Swami Vivekananda says in inspiring language, take the whole responsibility upon yourselves. You and work out your destiny. If our, uh, what we think and say and do, and that generates karma. If our bad karma is there, this is his language, is there like tigers waiting to pounce on us. Never fear, because all the good that you have done, that you have thought and felt and said and done, that is waiting with the power of a thousand angels, nay, a hundred thousand angels to come to your help. So this is the uh, actual understanding of the law of karma. So what do we have at the end of it all? A grand synthesis. This consciousness, which is also existence, which is also bliss, which we find our, uh, within ourselves in the microcosm, is the reality of the macrocosm also. This is also what we found in the macrocosm. When you investigate the macrocosm, you find this cycle of involution and evolution, manifestation and uh, the manifest and the unmanifest, uh, Prakriti going through cycles of the vast universe. And beyond it all, that same existence consciousness bliss. That, tat means in Sanskrit, tat means that. That means the reality beyond, uh, of this macrocosm. And tuam means thou, thou, the reality of this microcosm that's inner and subtler and inward to this physical body, the sensory system, subtler and inward to that, the mind, subtler and inward to that, the intellect, and innermost of all is this consciousness, the, the Atman, is also the same existence consciousness place. What is that is also thou. Thou art that, tattvamasi. The reality of the macrocosm is also the reality of the microcosm. So this is the grand uh, synthesis which Vedanta arrives at. I pray to Swami Vivekananda, to the Holy Mother, to Sri Ramakrishna, that what Swamiji said in this very city more than a hundred years ago, this grand synthesis of the cosmos and ourselves, we may realize this in, in, our, in our life, and to the extent that we realize it, may we get the bliss and the peace and the satisfaction of that. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamas Please stay safe wherever you are. May the Lord protect all of us.